0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild. Or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Dr.
1: Jamaica. Our stories go back to darkness we are much, much older, much, much more sophisticated than this strange society we live in. And, and the only way we get to live in that beauty again is if we have the courage to see beyond now. If we have the faith in the teachings of our ancestors to see beyond and create beyond now. Dr.
0: Jamaica Heoli Malakalani-Azorio is a Kanaka Maoli Wahine artist, activist, scholar, born and raised in Palola, Oahu. Heoli earned her PhD in English Hawaiian Literature in 2018 from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Currently, Heoli is an Assistant Professor of Indigenous and Native Hawaiian Politics at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Heoli is a three-time National Poetry Champion poetry mentor and a published author. She is a proud past Kaipuni student, Ford Fellow, and a graduate of Kamehameha, Stanford University BA and New York University MA. Her book, Remembering Our Intimacies, Mo Olilo, Aloha Aina, and EA, was published this fall with University of Minnesota Press. Well, Jamaica, thank you so much for joining us today. I would just really love for you to introduce yourself a bit further, however you see fit, or perhaps share a poem if you feel called to.
1: Okay. Well, aloha, mai kāko. O no. o Jamaica, heʻoli osorio. I was born and raised on the island of Oahu in the Pololo Valley. I'm a native Hawaiian artist, wahine, woman, queer person, poet, professor, scholar, educator, storyteller. I come from a beautiful, large family that most of our family actually grew up on another island, the island of Hawaii, um, in the malu of Mauna Mauna'awakea. But these days, uh, a lot of us live on Oahu, and me and my partner and our newborn child, she's three weeks old yesterday, along with my parents and my two sisters and brother. We all live in Wahiawa. Most people know me outside of my own profession as a a poet and a performer, but these days I spend much more of my time working directly with students at the University of Hawaii. I teach native Hawaiian and indigenous politics at our university. And I am what I consider to be a long time Hawaiian activist and Kia'i protector. And those things really inform pretty much everything about my life. And since you asked, I guess I guess I could share a poem. I know it, I was asked to prepare if I wanted to share a poem, and I didn't really think about it, but now I want to. And this poem was written in the in what we say in the Malu of Mauna Awakea, in the shade and protection of Mauna Awakea in 2019, in July of 2019, when thousands of us Native Hawaiians and our and our comrades had gathered to block the movement of construction vehicles up to the summit of our sacred mountain. Um, and I joined a number of other people who lived there at the per- the semi permanent encampment, kind of committing to to not leave until the construction vehicles left. And so this poem is about that time in on the Mauna, and this is also about the time when I, I met my partner and fell in love, and now have this beautiful life that I have now. Ask me about the Mauna. And I will tell you about 30 Kanaka huddled shivering in an empty parking lot, praying the Lahui would answer the call. I will tell you about two nights spent caught sleeping directly under a sky, scattered in stars, in air so clear, every inhale is medicine. How every morning I woke to a Lahui growing as if we were watching Maui fish us one by one from the sea. Ask me about the Mauna and I will tell you how on the third morning I watched this thirty became a hundred, then a hundred became a thousand, then a thousand became us all, each and every one of our Akua standing beside us. Ask me about the Mauna, and I will tell you the Mu'la of eight people chained to a cattle grate, and the Kokua who sat beside us, how we were never alone in the Malu of the Mauna, how no one is ever alone in the Malu of the Mauna. Ask me and I will tell you about the hands I held. Through the blistering cold and extreme heat how i learned love from the subtle tilt of her temple pressed against mine or the solemn promise of her eyes how the evening before i braided prayers into her hair hoping they would hold ask me and i will recount their names all 38 kupuna one after the other who showed us moopuna how to stand how i wept and wept and wept as i quietly held their names in my chest ask me and i will sing the song of our monowahine Linked arms and unafraid, who stood in the face of a promise of sound cannons and mace, ask me and I will tell you. I have been transformed here, but I won't have the words to quite explain. I will say, I do not know exactly who I will be when this ends. I don't know exactly who we will be when this ends. But at the very least, I'll know that this Aina did everything it could to feed me that will be enough to keep me standing. (sighs) (laughs) That's my poem.
0: Wow, what a way to start this conversation. I am left very stilled and chilled, and I'm just catching myself. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And hearing your passion behind each word and your inflection was just... Whew. It's le- left me in a state. So mm-hmm. hopefully I can get myself together enough to keep going. Um... You know, we
1: got to start with the deep stuff, right? Go right into it. Right into the people, as my people would say. Right into the center.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Whew. Well
0: to continue going deep into the center i'd like to ask you about polina as explored in your most recent book remembering mm-hmm. our intimacies and for listeners who are unfamiliar i'm going to share a passage from your dissertation remembering upina of intimacies wherein you write quote if relationships are about intimacies then this dissertation is also about considering the many forms intimacy can take and how certain relationships and intimacies are pursued and practiced. Some intimacies are realized through sex, some through experiencing together a sunrise or a cold rain, some through the simple yet important act of sharing names, especially in the face of a settler colonial project that has worked towards punishing, mocking, or eliminating certain forms and practices of intimacy. It is important that this project take intimacy seriously in its many shape-shifting forms, end quote. And I'm just particularly struck by this notion of shape-shifting intimacy. Mm. You know, intimacy that is expansive. So I, I'd love if you could begin by sharing how limiting our colonial understanding of intimacy is, and uh, Mm. non-comparable, the abundant nature of a pre-colonial intimacy?
1: Absolutely. Such a great question and really well-timed because this is exactly what we were talking about in my classes this morning. So I should be fresh. I'll talk a little bit about this from the perspective of a a Native Hawaiian, Wahine, queer person and and scholar who spends a lot of time uh, thinking about how our cultural norms have been transformed uh, erased policed via you know colonialism and belligerent occupation and a lot of this is can be really easily related to one particular word in hawaii that that a lot of people not even just hawaiians but a lot of people seem to have some kind of familiar familiarity with and that's that word is aloha and as as you folks might know aloha has Such a grand audience right everyone almost everyone's heard the word before but very few people actually know what it means and so many people are invested in a particular defining of aloha Uh, these days in Hawaii that definition is crafted to sell a product. And that product is Hawaii right this place is the product and we and our culture and our practices are a part of that product and it, it generates massive wealth for a small number of people who have no Kuleana no responsibility or authority in Hawaii. But that's also part of a much larger problem so before, as some might say in. in, Kava Uivi Vale, the time of just the natives, right? Before the arrival of people like Captain Cook and all his homies, and then, of course, the ABCFM mission. My people practice a really, as you say, expansive practice of aloha and intimacy and care. We were not heteronormative by any stretch of the imagination. We did not practice compulsory monogamy or compulsory heteronormativity. We practice what folks like. Lili Kala Hiva, who's a brilliant Hawaiian scholar, uh, she calls it Moiaku Moi the sleeping here or there. Uh, and there were a lot of things about Hawaiian society that were heavily regulated um, and spiritually regulated, but pleasure was never one of them. There was no expectation for you to have one partner of a particular sex. In fact, the only expectation there was is that you enter into consensual relationships and that you respect those relationships and you respect whatever boundaries you set up with the people you are in relation to. And that, and that's important because those pilina, those intimacies we shared between people, we shared them in that way because it was also reflected in the aina in the land and that which fed us we we learned how to give each other pleasure through pleasuring the land or through watching our other than human kin pleasure each other or the land you know a great example is watching a manu o o, um, a a honey creeper sip the nectar of a lehua blossom like that teaches us about giving pleasure to women that we see ourselves as a part of aina part of land and a part of creation but of course a lot of that changes with the coming of foreigners the first kind of wave of that change of course is with captain cook and these early early arriving europeans and their interest in buying sex essentially buying women Um, and of course that changes the way we think about about intimacy It, it changes the way we think about consent it changes the way and all of that comes with all kinds of problems around disease and death. And so even the the early Hawaiian kingdom is having to reckon with our norms around intimacy are no longer safe for us, uh, because we are dying from these venereal diseases that we never had here because these dirty Howley men are coming here and sleeping with women when they know that they're sick. So that's like the first wave. But what becomes actually a much more powerful wave of influence is in the 1820s when the missionaries arrived in Hawaii. And when the early first missionaries arrived in Hawaii, they, one of the rules for these missionaries is that they had to be married. So many of these missionaries from Boston went out and found wives so that they could come on this mission. And that's really important because an essential part of what they came to teach was what it means to be in a virtuous relationship, what it means to be a virtuous person, to be close to God, and so on and so forth. And so when they come to Hawaii, they start to import really particular ideas about what what kinds of intimacy are appropriate and what need to be policed out or mocked or removed. And here is where we see this really drastic transformation in the way that we conceive of our ohana, our what some may call families. Uh, And we go from these really expansive practices of Pilina, multiple partners, um, you know, no such thing as an illegitimate child. Uh, Our Ohana expand beyond the nuclear to these very rigid practices of what a family is. And some people may think like, okay, well, this is only having a a really small influence. It's just on the family. Um, But if you think about the way that my ancestors used to practice Ohana, And you think about the fact that we didn't have words for auntie and uncle that everyone in the generation above us was makua was a parent and everyone in our generation was a sibling when you look at the way christian christian um christian ideas around around intimacy and relationships what they really did is they reduced us into these really isolated households and that had a really tremendous effect on how we lived with each other, but also how we lived with our land. And so when we when we talk about this more expansive practice of aloha, whether it is, you know, two ahine um, seeking pleasure from each other, or two kane, two women, two men seeking pleasure from each other, or multiple women and men, or people who f- do not fit anywhere near this very strange gender binary seeking pleasure with each other in ways that are ethical, and then reflecting the intimacy of our land with each other. When when we talk about that, we not only make room for so many more of us who have kind of been cast aside by society really intentionally, we also recognize that the way that Hawaiians and other native people, this is, um, I'll speak for Hawaiians only, but I know from conversations with other native people that there's lots of resonance here, that the way that our people have been removed from our land displaced from our land, alienated from our land, that happened at the same time that they were removing us from each other, displacing us from each other, alienating us from each other. So when we talk about as Hawaiians, as Native people, when we talk about nation building, when we talk about governance, when we talk about land back, we also need to be talking about how do we come back to each other? because it is those intimate practices of pleasure and consent and desire that actually create a different world that we can live in, right? So we're not just talking about, yeah, a lot of people like this conversation because they, they like the sexy stuff, but we're not just talking about who's sleeping with who, we're talking about the, the most intimate ways that we all relate to everyone around us, which means we're talking about how we make community, which means we're talking about how we govern right? Which means we're talking about what world we're going to live in. And so, you know, my work and my research takes a really close look at some gorgeous and sexy and exciting examples of other ways we've lived before this strange world that said, the only real love is the one that exists in the imagination of the Bible. (laughs) And, And it asks us, or it reminds us that, it hasn't always been like this, which means it doesn't have to be like this forever. And we have so many examples of other ways we can live. So why not we just do that instead? Why not topple capitalism? Why not topple patriarchy? Why not burn so much of this to the ground and start again with something that not only is more authentic to who we are, but will also give life back to the earth give life back to that which feeds us and give purpose back to our lives and that is what that is the aloha that the hawaii tourism economy doesn't want you to know about that the state of hawaii doesn't want you to know about certainly the united states of america does not want you to know about because that kind of aloha is radical and will inspire intergenerate and has already inspired intergenerational revolutionary movements for change and we just need more and more of our people to know these stories and know these songs and and believe in them and and have faith in themselves once again to to change the world
0: bringing it again (laughs) (laughs) wow okay Hmm. this is just such a rich and embodied conversation already and I'm just so particularly drawn to the way in which you describe nets of intimacy, which shows reverence for our inextricable connections to one another. And
2: mm.
0: I'm thinking back to a recent conversation I had with a dear sis, uh, Nidia Alicia, who spoke to something similar as well pointing out that our understanding of self-care is somewhat of a fallacy if it doesn't recognize that our care is actually found in the care of each other. Yeah. And unfortunately, this past year and a half, almost two years now, I think has shown us how dominant society refuses to acknowledge our collective health, opting to fight for a very hollowed understanding of freedom. mm. So, I wonder if you could share any reflections you have right now on nets of intimacy and collective well being versus individual desire?
1: For sure. Such a great and important question, especially right now, but I think always for us to come back to. As a kanaka maoli, as a Native Hawaiian, I am constantly reminded that there is no such thing as the individual, that I, as an individual, do not ever exist outside of my relationships to those to everything that is around me and to pretend that I could exist outside of relation it's not only really strange but it also just sounds really lonely like I don't understand why people would want to live that way and so this is another thing we learned via colonialism right this really ingrained individualistic idea of what it means to move in the world when we think about upenna, these nets, uh, these fish nets of intimacy, that that metaphor is really important because it shows us how every relationship we enter into connects us to other relationships. And and in the book, I I, I use the example of this really important mo'olalo, the mo'olalo fi'iakwe kapolo pelle, and I talk about this one wahine, this one woman, who um, she has. Multiple female intimate partners and multiple male intimate partners. And many of these partners, even if they haven't met each other, refer to each other as intimate partners to themselves. And so this whole new world opens up when you really sit in the truthful understanding that to enter into any relationship means if I love you, I have to love everyone who loves you, I have to love everyone you love. Um, And not only do I have to love them, but I have to be accountable to them. And now my capacity for pleasure is certainly exponentially compounded, but my my capacity for responsibility and accountability skyrockets. I have to always see myself as a part of this larger collective. And if I fail to do that, my actions not only harm myself, they harm the collective. And so when we look at something like, you know, this very strange, um, understanding of freedom and individual pursuit of of freedom and rights. I have to remind my own people that freedom is not a Hawaiian value. It is not something we ever valued as a people. This idea that you have these natural rights you were born with that don't come with a responsibility, that don't come with a with with another side of that coin. Our language makes this very clear. The word Kuleana, the word for right, the word for authority is also our word for responsibility. There is no such thing as one without the other. They are always in relationship to each other. And so I I like to from a from a Hawaiian perspective, I like to remind folks that, you know, these Western values are the values that brought us to this moment, are the values that put us in this situation. They are not going to be the values that are going to help us survive, let alone help us thrive in life again. So when we think about self care and and collective care, uh, when we think about our kuleana to the world around us, I, I like to center that idea that none of us walk on this planet alone. That every step you take has an impact, and that shouldn't that shouldn't deter us from from trying to move the world. It shouldn't deter us from trying to change the world, but it should certainly remind us that the things we say matter, that people are listening, that the actions I take on or don't take on will have a compounding effect. And so when you're living in a time like this, when you're living in the middle of a pandemic, the, 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 lar- the greatest worst pandemic uh, any of us living have seen, and there are people around you who are worried about their rights and their freedom there's there's got to be there's got to be another part of ourselves that reminds us that w- what is the value of rights and freedom if we don't have each other because you know perhaps perhaps it is possible for an individual to get out of this situation alive without thinking about others but it is not possible for all of us to get out of this alive without thinking about each other and there are too many of us who do not have the power, resources, or influence to protect ourselves, for any of us to be taking that lightly? And so, you know, without me just getting too overly scolding the world, I, I just want to remind us that we need to look a little deeper into ourselves, especially especially as Kanaka, uh, as native as Hawaiians and as native people, that when we when we take on the pride of calling ourselves native, that, that comes with a responsibility and that means we have to really think critically about the values we bring into the world and one of the things that i've learned from from our stories from our history and, and from my ancestors both the ones who are still here and the ones who have long returned to the realm of pole to darkness um is that there's nothing more important than our relationship to each other no individual desire of mine could be more important than the health and well-being of the LaHui. And and so many of our people have experienced devastating losses like this in the past. In In our own history, we lost 90% of our population due to, to diseases that we didn't have immunities for. Some of those diseases are, are ones that we didn't have vaccines for at the time, but have vaccines for today. And so there's also this other intergenerational trauma around how do, we, how do we really respect the loss that our ancestors went through and live in this moment in a way with intention as, as Native people who recognize that, especially for those of us who believe in protecting the land, that protecting the land means protecting each other and the two go hand in hand. And so, um, so we begin there. I think
2: the names of the faces have been silenced and erased from history's recorded time and place. As we step back through our ancestors' paradise, through the trees, the and the rivers and the sacred fire, we find that the people in the land are one and the same and that the spirit and the blood of our ancestors are within us and we shall never, never die. I'm going home. home. When-
0: I feel like the more I learn, the more of what you're speaking to is the priority for climate justice, for environmental justice. Mm. We can't get out of being relational. there's no oh, yeah. there's no solution that we're gonna stumble upon or invent or some technology that's going to be found that Mm -hmm. will be more important than relationships. So yeah, I'm, I'm so there with you. And I've, I feel like I've just been in a huge process of embodying that knowledge Mm -hmm. in a way that I didn't know was possible. So I'm, I'm just really happy you spoke to that and, Uh, Yeah, I'm thinking about how you recently shared some reflections on Instagram called, quote, COVID, the end of the world and finding ourselves. Mm. And in this video, you candidly reflect on the way we're talking to each other, specifically sharing, quote, our relationships with each other are going to save us or destroy us, end quote. And this is an acknowledgement I've been feeling really deeply and I think many listeners might share this recognition as well as we become more polarized, not only against those who might share opposing views, but even in our own circles and movements. Mm. So can you expand upon this sentiment and the importance of coming home to relationship?
1: Mm. Yeah, This this is something that COVID certainly didn't teach me, but my commitment to this lesson had to be elevated because of the things that were happening that continue to happen around COVID. And and at the center of this, this idea, right, our relationships with each other are going to save us or destroy us. At, at the center of this is a real desire as a Kanaka to not forsake any of my people, because I am a Kanaka who, who, because of Western ideology, that had been imported into my community had been forsaken there is to me a direct correlation between the ways that many hawaiians have bought into the idea of heterosexuality as virtue and you know the only way to be in relation is for a man and a wife to have a child like all that bs there's a correlation between that and and the way that these other very strange <laughs> anti vax anti science anti collective care alt right centering of american freedom and rights uh have gotten also strangely imported imported into my community and and so as a as a queer person i recognize the i recognize that violence and i recognize the impact of that violence and i' I've, it's not just in the example of you know being queer or or living in the pandemic, but it's also in the example of looking at uh, the impact of the U.S. military on my community and how there are many people in my community who are not critical of the U.S. military, who serve in the U.S. military and and celebrate the, the violence and destruction of the U.S. military. And still, those are people who are a part of my community. Those are still Hawaiians, those are still Ohana. And so that the work, the real work is not just me standing on my soapbox saying the military is not just destroying Hawaii, but it's destroying the world. And the U S military industrial complex cannot stand if we want to live. That's not actually the real work. The real work is being able to still stand and live with and build relationship with my community so that we can heal and come together to design a world where we will thrive. Right. If it's just me and my you know, radical friends standing in a corner talking about this beautiful world we're, we're gonna build, and so many of our ohana are are not with us, then what what, what is this world for? And so that's what I really was thinking about in, in that one particular video. And, you know, the context around that video is that I kind of stepped all the way into the polarized mud around to vaccinate or not to vaccinate because I was getting so frustrated not just with what is certainly a large group of new age, strange cross over white supremacy groups in Hawaii, kind of creating their own misinformation about COVID and the vaccine. But what I was really troubled by was how many Hawaiians were repeating those same narratives. And I got so frustrated, I just, you know instead of being in conversation and community with the Lahu'i, i just started shaming people who did not think the way that i did um and that was in direct opposition to these these larger more important idea ideas around how important our relationships are and so since then um, i think i've learned a lot and the, the people that i'm in community with we've we've learned a lot and we're struggling a lot with that work, there is no more valuable work than building relationships and there is no more difficult work than maintaining them. But the, the impact of that is tremendous. I mean, you, you talked about you know climate activism and, and the work of climate justice, and you look at what was happening at COP26 or whatever the number is now, and all the amazing work happening outside of the building all of the amazing organizing and activism and leadership coming from young people from the Pacific, from from all parts of the world, all of that is possible because of relationship building. You look at Black Lives Matter in 20, how Black Lives Matter um, in 2020 slash 2021 gained so much more gained so much more attention. And had such a wider impact across the world, and especially across what we consider to be the United States of America. So much of that is about relationship building. You look at what happened on Mauna Kea in 2019. So much about of that is about relationship building we did in our own Lahui, but also solidarity and relationship building we did with other Native people from Standing Rock to Line Three, um, and across Turtle Island. And so that's really what that means, right? Our relationships with each other are going to save us or destroy us if, if we don't center Pelina in the process and also in what we hope to be the product of our work, we have set a very low ceiling for what we will achieve. And what we are also saying by that is that we are okay with getting to the finish line with only some of us. And I just, I can't think of a world, I can't think of a universe where in the values I've been taught by my my ancestors and our mo'olalo, where that would be appropriate. Um, all that to me sounds like is, you know, our people creating institutions that look like the same institutions that violate us. It looks like the military industrial complex. It looks like the medical industrial complex. It looks like the prison uh, and police industrial complexes. Uh, and I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna be a part of that work. Uh, And so that, you know, a part of that video too is recognizing like, oh, it's really easy to fall into that trap. Um, So the work isn't just about being perfect. The work is about recognizing when you are, as Leanne Simpson would say, siding with the colonizer, Uh, recognize it, own it, take accountability for it, and then change your behavior um, and see if that change of behavior We'll inspire others to do the same and see what you can build on that fertile soil.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, so deep and meaningful. And I find myself in a community, a small community now with loggers and miners. And mm. I was just getting firewood and oh gosh, thinking about conversations with old growth loggers. And Mm. here I have been a fierce defender of old growth logging for over a decade and still the humanity in relationship and still we're humans. And Mm. I think that for the most part, people are doing their best. I actually think that people who are making different decisions than me that I might think to myself, what are you doing? How could you even, (laughs) how, how, why are you not saying this? I actually don't think they're thinking it's wrong. Mm. Whether they've been conditioned, trained, taught, traumatized into, Mm. we don't live in a vacuum from each other. Mm -hmm. And so I can't imagine a world where everybody who somehow thinks differently than me, even if they are being violent towards the earth somehow just disappears and then Mm. a whole new society is created. (laughs) I don't see that happening. So if that isn't going to happen, then how are we going to move through this together? How Mm. are we going to find ways of relating and changing each other because we're being vulnerable, not because we're demanding it of one another? Just the practice of humbling oneself becoming more vulnerable and more connected to even the folks who feel so far from us Um, Mm. yeah completely challenging
1: well and i i think i think you're right that you know most of the people in the world are are doing our best and everything about the society we live in has worked to alienate us from each other it's it's not It's not an accident that we have problems connecting, right? It's not an accident that we don't have generative relationships. All of that is intentional, from you know, the political polarization (laughs) to the like relational polar, all of that. So we're we're not gonna change each other by me saying like, oh, you're stupid because you believe these things, if we can't actually sit at a table and like build a relationship. I mean, I I do believe that there are some just like evil, greedy people, but by and large, (laughs) by and large, most of us are doing our best and Most, almost all of us are making decisions uh, impacted by fear. Mm -hmm. And fear is Mm -hmm. such a powerful, powerful emotion. And we can't address fear if we can't look each other in the eyes, right? We can't address fear if we can't talk to each other. And that's where that, like, that idea of Pirina, that idea of intimacy, you say vulnerability, same thing. I can't address why both of our responses to fear are opposite unless I can actually see the fear in you. And when I see the fear in you, I see the fear in me, and we are both giving back our humanity right we're both humbled by that. Um, and I that I think is such difficult work but such important work, especially in a time like you know in the in the COVID world where some of us haven't seen each other in two years. Even the people we feel closest to we haven't seen them in two years we haven't made new connections with people in two years we we're, we're. i thought this before covid happened that we were in uh that we were starving for intimacy and i i think now we're in a, a crisis of intimacy that we really need to attend to
0: mm mm-hmm. absolutely yeah and again there is no way around this intimacy for healing there's there's no shortcut there is no carbon sequestering technology. You can't pay it off, right?
1: You can't <laughs> Right. You, you can't, can't make work enough like money that. for it.
0: There's no yeah. net zero. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you're either doing it or you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh.
0: Well, I, I could literally have a <laughs> hours long conversation with you just on this alone. Yeah. But um, I do wanna transition our conversation and now look at the concepts of Aloha, which you started to mention at the beginning of our conversation. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm particularly interested in asking you this in context of the ways that this idea of Aloha has been not only appropriated, but transmuted into some sort of unrecognizable saccharine <laughs> selling point. Mm-hmm. Um, in a plenary address that your father, Jonathan Arizo, you share, quote, I'm not speaking of Aloha as it has been watered down and evoked by the tourist industry as passivity. I'm mm. speaking of Aloha as a radical form of activism and healing, mm. and it is also a form of resistance. in a world full of violence, hate and oppression. What could be more radical than choosing love over hate, choosing love over fear, choosing inclusion over exclusion? Nothing end quote so please share what it means to embody aloha and to reclaim Mm. it amidst its commodification what sort of (laughs) yeah what sort of world is reopened when this happens
1: yeah this is this is a great question and i can't that quote i remember that plenary address with my father you told me just you totally just took me back however many years ago that was i feel young all over again um (laughs) what is aloha so there like i said a little bit earlier and like like you gestured to just now there are so many people invested in what aloha means um and there's that whole tourist industry trying to sell aloha you know aloha sells everything from uh, hawaii the destination to pest control to food products to lotions to Um, sexually transmitted disease apps and so on and so forth everyone has a vested interest in aloha because what they've seen is that it's been used in the greatest marketing scheme of all time right the selling of uh, hawaii as a as a destination as a product but aloha hasn't just been misappropriated for that purpose aloha has also been used against us native hawaiians in policing our behavior so in that larger scheme of aloha selling Hawaii, uh, there's this idea that aloha means hospitality. Aloha means you're always welcome here. Aloha means I am submissive and accepting of whatever you bring to my shores, right? Anything outside of that is not aloha. And therefore, if Hawaiians are all about aloha, anything outside of that is a behavior not becoming of a Hawaiian. So we see this really strange strange policing kind of similar to the way that, you know, women are told, like, that's not very ladylike, that's not how a woman behaves. So we see this very similar policing of behavior, um, as you would see with women, right, women need to behave in a particular way, Hawaiians need to behave in a particular way. And they create, there's the state of Hawaii, this magic institution created, created the idea of the Aloha spirit, right. And the Aloha spirit is, is not this thing that my Kupuna talked about, not this thing that we read about in our mo'olaloa and sing about in our songs. It's this heavily crafted list of behaviors, norms of behaviors, right? Aloha never raises its voice. Aloha never pushes back. Aloha never protests. Aloha never steps outside of the church. And so somehow these ideas, a lot of them have been internalized in our own community and we use them to police ourselves so that when... Nine Kanaka Maoli, Native Hawaiians, in the 1970s, they land on Koho'olawe, an island that had been bombed, continuously bombed as target practice by the US military since World War II. Um, when they land on that island saying, you're not going to bomb this island anymore, other Hawaiians call those Hawaiians bad Hawaiians and they aren't practicing aloha. It's crazy, like the beautiful magic trick, right, where we turn our people against each other using a word. Um, completely misusing a word, but also forcing us all to participate in the state in a particular way. And we see the same thing over and over from Koʻolawe to protesting the H3 to protesting Mauna Kea. There's always this contest over whether or not we are acting with aloha. Um, You know, when you stand in front of a line of police officers and you refuse to move are you acting with aloha? Well, the state of Hawaii would say no, the state of Hawaii will say that we are criminals, that we are vagrants, that we are violent, even though we're singing and chanting and crying. But my kuhuna, my ancestors and our moʻolala will tell us there is no greater act of aloha than to protect each other and to protect our land. So that is the work of kind of reembodying and reclaiming aloha from this unrecognizable idea and a part of that is returning the word aloha to this shortly longer phrase aloha aina which means to love the land which means i learn to love from the land which means i will do anything i can to protect the land and each other that work is about insisting that no one understands aloha like we do and that we as Hawaiians have the authority to say what is and isn't aloha and the state will never have that kind of authority. And when we do that work, right? When we, when we look at the BS that is the marketing scheme to sell the aloha spirit, people are trying to sell the aloha spirit by telling you to like drive with aloha or act with aloha and we can look at all of that in the eye and in the eyes and say someone is benefiting from this very narrow vision of aloha in the same way that someone has benefited from this very narrow vision of ohana of community of nation what do we have to gain and learn and return to if we just open that up again if we say uh you need to check your sources you don't know what you're talking about here are all these examples of what aloha is what kind of world do we open up well we open up a world beyond the military we open up a world beyond prisons because there's nothing there's nothing about the prison industrial complex that is in alignment with aloha there is nothing about a system that says some of us are not worthy of being honored as human that is represented in aloha you open up a world beyond police because there's nothing about aloha that says some of us should walk around with unquestioned authority and weaponry that we use to harm others. So, so like you asked right like what do we create we create possibility, we create answers to some of the most pressing and challenging needs of our time in the in the same way that aloha asks us to recognize each other, it also asks us to recognize our relationship to the Aina, to the the land, to that which feeds us, that which is around us, right, so we're also talking about opening up a universe in which nothing is more important, not your economy, not your, you know, your global military force, not your own ego, is more important than figuring out how to honor the earth. Uh, And not just for the selfish reasons of the earth, we only live if the earth lives, but for the real intentional and intimate understanding that the earth is our ancestor, and we are still in relationship to her, and she deserves as much life and thriving as we do. And so those are, you know, those are just a few things that open up with aloha. And the the reason this space is so contested, right, is because there are still so many people benefiting from this watered down policed version of aloha it continues to fuel the tourist economy it continues to fuel uh, the state of hawaii it it continues still to this day to successfully convince many hawaiians to not stand up and use their voices because they are afraid that they will be seen as un-hawaiian what a what a crazy magic trick Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: I can only imagine like the feeling that it would invoke in you to see Aloha being used in so many ridiculous ways to sell things that have nothing to do with the spirit of your people. That's really disturbing. And I'm grateful that you have had the grace to stick with it and Mm -hmm. express how wrong that is and what truth is around aloha because i think many people who have heard that word have no
1: understanding of the death yeah it's the word that everyone everyone's heard but nobody knows Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. aloha means hello it means goodbye it (laughs) doesn't mean those things right and and you ask most people like what makes hawaii special uh they'll tell you they'll either say the beach, or they'll say aloha. Mm -hmm. Um, And when they say aloha, they are in their minds repeating this very intentional crafted version of aloha, which means everything about us is a misnomer. (laughs) Everything the world thinks about us, even what we think about us, it has been crafted by the Hawaii Tourism Authority, uh, by Disney movies, by Lilo and Stitch, by, By every single TV show that ever did a Hawaii episode, that's how people come to understand what Hawaii is and who Hawaii is. Um, So to me, you know, in in centering this idea of Pirina and relationships, because of course, Aloha is all about relationality and relationships. There is no more critical question for our people to constantly be interrogating and building around and loving around than what is Aloha? And how do we reclaim the Aloha that our ancestors promised for us and wished for us? And how will reclaiming that, like, if we can't do that, we can't, we can't get our country back if we can't do that. We can't get our land back. Maybe we get our land back, but then we just reproduce the same violence if we can't do that. Um, so a, a lot of that has to do with the, the same thing that folks in other places will, will say, like, we're talking about going beyond inclusion. We're talking about transformation. And that transformation, just like we said at the beginning, it has to begin at the pico, at the center. Otherwise, we would say poho, like waste time. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm right there with you. (laughs) On every word, I'm I'm nodding. (laughs) Well, I'd like to ask you about what your work has reminded you about intergenerational wisdom. You shared that you are, quote, concerned with how these teachings of mo'olilo of our ancestors are instructive in our modern movement building and organizing, end quote. Mm. And I'm curious to hear your reflections on this, as well as the ways in which younger generations are filling in the gaps created by settler colonialism.
1: This is a great question. And, and it's a complicated question, because as as you probably know, and, and maybe many of the listeners know, the, the movement to assimilate Native Hawaiians into a western civilization was in many ways very successful and so there are whole generations that you know my my father's generation but certainly my grandfather's generation he's like the the prime example uh his generation is the prime example uh didn't learn their language didn't learn our stories many still learned our songs because you know because that was this one thing that was seen by missionaries and and kind of the larger oligarchy that were harmless, which they were wrong about. The songs carried a lot of a lot of ike, a lot of knowledge. But anyway, didn't learn a lot of these things that we know today. And so when we talk about intergenerational wisdom, there's there's a lot of complications in the way that that we organize together. Because there is this older knowledge. And this older knowledge is is held in our Hawaiian language newspapers. We have over a million pages of writing by by our ancestors from 1834 till you know the 1950s in our own language, stories, songs, political commentary, news—all in our language. So there's this older knowledge there. There's also this older knowledge that's still held within within our music, within our hula, um, and the practitioners who have been entrusted to guard that knowledge. So we're talking about kumu hula, which are like uh, The simplest way for me to translate that is like hula teachers but really they are they are guardians of knowledge of a certain knowledge so they hold that older knowledge there are some other people who practice other ancient hawaiian practices that were passed down for generations and they hold that older knowledge but there's also this whole new generation maybe last two generations of hawaiians who have been alive during the the most recent Renaissance, and in particular, a revival of Hawaiian language, right? So folks in my generation who went to Hawaiian language immersion schools, who learned these stories as children, who learned our language as children. So when we sing our songs, we know what the songs actually mean as children, Uh, who went back and studied from those older sources of Hawaiian Ike, who, as you say, are kind of filling in the gaps that were created by settler colonialism, or or settler colonialism are those big caverns that were created by settler colonialism. And there is an understanding, I think, as respectful humans, but also, you know, as, as Native Hawaiians, that we honor, we always honor the generations before us, right? We honor our parents, we honor our grandparents, and we honor the, the ancestors before them. And when we do work, when we, especially when we're organizing today, that's critical to the work that we do, that young people don't just go off and do any kind, as we would say, we don't go off and just make any kind and not listen to the teachings of Rakupuna. At the same time, there are some pretty big political differences between some of the folks in my generation and the the younger generations and the generation of my father and, and the generation of my grandfather. A lot of that is shifting, a lot of that has, you know is directly correlated to the trauma of colonialism of you know my grandfather living in a time where you weren't allowed to speak Hawaiian where being Hawaiian there was no value seen in anything Hawaiian which is the exact opposite of what it's meant to grow up in my time and so we have had to be more dexterous more I don't want to say not careful more intentional We've had to come from a place of healing. We have had to really take the time to, to listen and speak and see each other in the organizing that we do because inevitably the, the vision of the future from some folks in older generations is very different from the vision of the future of, of my generation and those younger. And a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of it has everything to do with growing up with your language or not. Uh, and I tell this to my students there is no greater thing you can do to, to ch- not just change the world but to change the way you see the world than to learn your native tongue 100 percent, no greater thing you can do when you learn as a Hawaiian when you learn the Hawaiian language not only do you see the world a different way because the language creates the world in a different way but you open up yourself to like I said those million pages of writing by your ancestors that you never could have read before and the, in those m- a million pages are examples of different worlds that we could live in, are examples of worlds we've lived in before. Um, and so the way I think about it now, as someone who's been really blessed to be involved in, in different movements from the movement to protect Mauna Kea or you know, other movements is that the, the honoring of intergenerational wisdom is always there and the honoring of our kupuna of our elders is always there but respect and compliance are not the same thing. And there will be times in the work that we do because this work requires us to trudge through all kinds of trauma and violence and fear and ideas around scarcity and possibility. It's going to at times require young people and i'm like aging out of the young people category now right i'm, I'm a parent i'm a makua um, so i'm not an opio i'm not a i'm not a young person anymore in that sense in terms of our generations uh young people are going to have to stand by the beliefs that they have they're gonna to have to be open to the teachings of their ancestors and and their elders But they're also gonna need to trust those teachings and trust where those teachings lead them. And and this really reminds me of something that Noi Goodyear Kaopuo wrote in a in a blog post once. She said, There's no shame in being the grandparents of the seventh generation. And, And she talks about how, you know, the older generations or herself, like she didn't learn about the Hawaiian overthrow or speak her language until she was out of high school. But that her children had those lessons from birth. Her children had the language of our ancestors on their tongues since birth. So our elders prepared young people to take us into a more expansive future. And so the hard work then is those of us who are older and aging, we have to trust that foundation that was built. And we have to trust that these keiki, these opio, these young folks, they know where to take us because we prepared them to take us there. And to me that, trust in that, even when that perhaps creates conflict, even when that means that young people have a different idea of what should happen than maybe the elders in the room, trusting in that is actually trusting intergenerational wisdom. It's trusting an intergenerational process that brought us to this moment. But again, that's that's hard work, especially in a time where settler colonialism, as we know, is it's not An event it's systems and structures around us all the time and and it's constantly trying to get in between us and it's constantly trying to. uh, face us with limits right ideas around scarcity ideas around what's possible what isn't possible and who better than our young people to see through that bs. Uh, We need to trust them that that wisdom the intergenerational wisdom, which I think we don't think about as much goes both ways it doesn't just mean heed all the words of the elders it means trust the foundation the elders built in you trust the vision and um center good relations and we'll be okay
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yes trust is also something that i've been practicing a lot Mm. lately and i'm really grateful that you brought that up because I think there's something around intimacy and trust and surrender Mm. and relationship building that's all woven into the same tapestry and I also see youth knowing so much they're like popping out already with so much knowledge mm-hmm. and wisdom and a really deep knowing and kind of almost like a no bs type of understanding of things i'm mm-hmm. constantly amazed when i talk to young children and kids and teenagers i'm like what you know so much and you're 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 so present with what is mm. and and it does give me a lot of relief and excitement and yeah trusting that they got this not to walk away of course like support them yeah. to step into their lives and gosh there's so much that I came across while preparing for our conversation but there was this interview where you shared the ways in which after a certain period of time and great success writing poetry felt like a burden when mm. you were expected to create content for others but you felt you had run out of things to say. I imagine you no longer feel like this, but I think so many listeners might be struggling with this sort of personal and artistic burnout, while also feeling guilty that the mediums wherein we can feel beyond thought, you know, become stagnant. Mm. So can you revisit these sentiments and how you emerged from it?
1: Mm. Yeah, well, you know, I think, I think capitalism's really messed with us all in terms of how we think about productivity, um, or how we th- how we conceive of ourselves in relationship to our productivity. I, I remember people telling me, and me really believing this that like a poet is someone who wrote today, and I, I get the sentiment these days. I look back and I get the sentiment right. Like to be a poet is to practice. Uh, to be a poet is to you know, make make beauty and make real of the world around you. But the way that those ideas have been really deeply ingrained in 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 our mana'o and in our thoughts around my value comes from what I can produce is really, really harmful. And so I think a part of my I think a part of a lot of our burnout is so much of our lives is around production. Whether it's in our jobs that like we have to produce in a particular way, or it's even in the things that we do because we love them and for me that was poetry was was never supposed to be a job it was never supposed to be something that that paid the bills and and I got kind of lucky slash unlucky that. You know, there was a lot of I I, I had a lot of opportunity as a poet, uh, and it did end up. You know, it paid for me to go to college and it did all these great things. And so I started to see it as an occupation and I started to, and somehow as seeing it as an occupation, I started to see it as connected to my value. And I don't think there's any way to go through life like that without burning out eventually. Like if we connect the things we do to who we are in terms of our value, again, like that's a pretty low ceiling we're sending or setting for ourselves. And these days, I wouldn't say that I have nothing to say. Like in those moments before, like I felt like I had run out of things to say or run out of new ways to say old things because that's really what poetry is, right? Nobody's actually saying anything new. You're saying something old in a new way, um, in a way that will capture someone else, that will create resonance with someone else, which is why poetry is so amazing because it's something that, can be put out into the world and connect two people who have never seen each other never met each other never touched each other and yet for that moment they are touching. Uh, They are reverberating off of each other like gorgeous. Um, So I, I no longer feel like I have nothing to say, but I do feel like the world I live in the reality I live under makes it very difficult to find space to connect enough with myself and the environment around me to say something worthwhile. Which, which is to say, I spend too much time on my computer teaching Not, I love teaching my class, but doing all the things around teaching my class tied to my job so that I can keep my job so that I can pay my mortgage so that I can buy food for you know, my family so that I can put money away for my kid to go to college. All of these pressures that we're all living under to differing degrees, depending on our privilege. And I'll recognize that I have a, I have a great amount of privilege in terms of the, the job that I hold. Uh, that I'm able to survive under capitalism, when so many of our people are certainly barely surviving under the weight of this ridiculous system. But capitalism doesn't have space for creativity. In fact, creativity is dangerous to capitalism. Creativity will lead us to a place that will tell us there's another way to live beyond capitalism. And so I think when a lot of people talk about burnout or they talk about, you know, uh, they're just tired, creatively I don't think people are tired creatively I think people are tired of living under these unlivable conditions that we have convinced ourselves are livable because we have also convinced ourselves that there's no other way to live and so if like if people are are wanting you know my advice I don't know why anyone would want my advice but if people are wanting my advice to that then it's it's not that we need to think of new ways to create it's that we need to think of uh find more ways to tumble and and tackle and destroy or burn down capitalism yeah i think about as an example right i I think about the work we did and continue to do at mauna awakea to protect that mountain um and i think about how difficult that work is how people left their jobs how people left their families and lived on the foot of a mountain for some people for nine months not me i was there for maybe three months um and they lived in the most unforgiving one of the most unforgiving um climates in the world right you can go from uh danger of frostbite to danger of heat exhaustion in less than an hour Uh, and people did that because they loved they loved this they love our Aina and they love each other but they also did it because (laughs) Because the system we live in that has been devised, the people whose job it was to protect that mountain, our leadership, they weren't doing their job. So the maka'i nana, the common people, the everyday people, we had to do their job and our job. And that creates burnout, right? When we're living in unlivable situations and yet we refuse to just comply and die. We say, no, we're gonna take on the beast. And I think about what is really the job of the common person, the job of people like us? It is to, you know, it is to tend to our gardens, it is to grow food, it is to write poems, it is to compose music, it is to surf and enjoy the aina and the environment around you, it is to spend time with your family. But none of those things are possible if the world is telling you, you need to, at the very least, work a nine to five job in order to keep a roof over your heads. and so capitalism is the death of creativity. Capitalism is the death of, of creation. And, and, and vice versa, creation and creativity are the death of capitalism. So if you feel burnt out, you know, take a rest, take a sleep, practice community care, but then come back to it because as Mari Matsuda says, artists are gonna save the world. Um, and if the artist dies, the world dies. And I don't know. I think there are better things waiting for us that we should keep fighting.
0: That was honey for my heart. <laughs> that, I needed <laughs> to hear that personally. I, Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think it's easy for us, especially those of us who find joy in creating the pressure and mm. the overwhelm of just trying to navigate through this time and create things that feel true and inspiring and meaningful while, you know, sometimes the world burns. It's like really intense. And then all just the pressure of figuring out how to survive and Mm. how to take care of ourselves and our families and each other. So, yeah. oh gosh, yeah, that was really, really, really good for me to hear. And I'm sure so many others will feel... Relieved too, and mm. gosh, oh, Jamaica, this has been so amazing, and I really don't want this conversation <laughs> to come to a close. But as we are starting to come to the end of this moment that will hopefully never fully end, I I just like to ask you about this idea of an abundance of realities, mm. remembering our intimacies calls readers to recognize the future is in ancestral pasts. Mm. And I've heard you speak about how many alternatives there are to capitalism in the history of your people alone, a sentiment shared by almost all indigenous peoples across the globe. And I think what this reminds me of is, yes, there are other visions, but so many will never see those visions. Mm. And I wonder if you could just respond to that this recognition that the vast majority of society refuses to open themselves to possibility
1: Mm. yeah that's a great question and i i think it goes back to something we, we talked about a little bit earlier in the in the power of fear and the real success of the evils of the world right like we said most people are doing their best and there are a few kind of evil folks Evil, greedy folks pulling the strings who are benefiting from the destruction of the planet, who are benefiting from the destruction of of our people and the death of our people and destitution of our people. I think one of the biggest lies that's ever been sold, even just in Hawaii and, and perhaps around the world, is this idea of scarcity. This idea that there isn't enough. And I don't know who came up with that lie. They must have been a really great marketer because it's spread across the world like wildfire. This idea that there's not enough for all of us and that idea has been used as justification for hoarding of resources whether it's you know min- uh you know minerals or or any other kind of like water and any other kind of resources that that give or take life and so many of us believe it i mean good hearted beautiful uh, even activists, right, we believe that there's a scarcity of resources, there's a scarcity of time, and the, the more I think about it, and the, and the more I read about our, our histories, and the more I even look, like if you spend time with the Aina, you, know, you spend time with the land, the more you realize that there is no scarcity that has not been created by greed. Scarcity is not a natural phenomenon in the way that we've been taught, there is more than enough, there is abundance, and, and you think about what is the greatest threat to capitalism the greatest threat to capitalism is abundance, this idea that we don't need to hoard, that we don't need to maximize what we can draw in profit from the earth, in labor from people, uh, through violence upon both. And I think if anything, if anything I wish more of us could see, it's how much abundance is really around them, how much abundance is within us, right? Because even we have been told as people that we lack we lack what it takes to, to be productive in society, to contribute to society in a particular way, to change society. We don't have the answers. All of that is BS marketing from the guys holding the capitalist strings. Um, and the more we can get people to see, even in, even in Hawaii, I think of examples, like you know, in our, in our own small communities, can you see the abundance in your own community where society has said there was none? Right. Can you see that Koholawe and the island we talked about before that was bombed for a number of uh, decades by the US military as target practice? Can you see that place as something more than barren? Can you see that place as something that still has life, that still has something to teach us? Can you see Mauna Kea, the highest peak in the Pacific, the largest mountain in the world when measured from its base? Can you see it as a sanctuary? Can you see it as as a as a holy land, even though there are already 13 telescopes upon it? Can you see its abundance? Can you see what it it will teach you? Because if you can, then the only logical, I think, the only logical next step to that is how do we open our eyes to all the other abundance around us and how do we come to recognize the way capitalism itself, the way that we've organized our society around capitalism, as the center, central, most important value uh, to Americans and certainly to the Western world? How can we use the abundance around us to see the lie of capitalism, to look it in the face, and to see the way that our fear is keeping us from living beyond it? There is an there are enough forces in the world that will tell us capitalism cannot fall, we do not need to be one of those forces. We need to be the voices that remind all of us, our parents, ourselves, our children, our grandchildren. That not only is another world possible later, so many other worlds were happening before capitalism, in fact, in the grand scheme of things when you look at the age of our indigenous communities right some of us have been here, our stories go back to darkness we are much much older much much more sophisticated than this strange society we live in and and the only way we get to live in that beauty again is if we have the courage to see beyond now if we have the faith in the teachings of our ancestors to see beyond and create beyond now and as as kind of a final thought that, I, that I've been thinking about a lot these days, is there's, there's a lot of us who some of this fear is compounded by the, you know, the climate catastrophe that we're living in, and we are living in a climate catastrophe, and there are people around the world who are suffering greatly already at the hands of climate change. Well, not the hands of climate change, at the hands of those who have created climate change out of greed. Um, but in Hawaii, Uh, Last, I don't know, last spring, when Hawaii was closed for a number of months to tourists, there were places that had not seen sharks or fishes or certain plants in in decades because of our impact on the land, those places, those sharks came back, the fishes came back, the aina was transformed in a matter of months, which I want to remind people of this. To tell them that even the things that we think are far gone are not far gone, and that the land we live on is so incredible, not just Hawaii right all the lands we live on are so resilient that they will come back if we do our part to get out of the way. And when we get out of the way. We can imagine and create beyond capitalism again that there will be abundance again the fish will come back we don't need to ship in all of our food from around the world in hawaii so that we don't produce any food of our own the fish are here they will feed us the aina can be restored we can feed ourselves there is really and and this is hard to say sometimes because we do live in a scary dark world there is really so much to look forward to so much within our control We just have to have, like we said, a little trust in each other, a little faith and commit to doing it together.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm with you and I am committed (laughs) to doing it. And I feel that those listening are also Mm. dedicated to that commitment. So thank you so much. I'm really moved and inspired by this conversation, I really hope to have another one because I just I can't let my mind rest thinking that we're not going to have another conversation in the future. so yeah um, this is just a pause so listeners don't worry this is a pause. we will <laughs> we'll come back to you
1: <laughs> I can't wait. Thank you so much for having me it's been it's been really wonderful. maybe you know and our people everyone says Aloha means goodbye. Aloha doesn't mean goodbye. We say ahui ho um, until we meet again because we know we will meet again and we will build beautiful futures in that meeting
3: thank you for listening to this episode of For the Wild podcast the music you heard today is by Buddha Fay, Rising Appalachia, and Justin Cromer For the Wild is created by Ayana Young Ali Constantine Erica Ekram.
2: Emily Guerra and Julia Jackson.